I invite you to Acts 27. That is where we will center our attention today, Acts chapter 27. They said she was unsinkable. Sailing across the Atlantic Sea on her maiden voyage from Southampton, England to New York City, the British luxury liner Titanic struck an iceberg about 95 miles south of the Grand Banks of Newfoundland. Just before midnight on April the 14th, 1912, that iceberg punctured five of the ship's 16 watertight compartments. That was one more than anyone thought was possible under any circumstance. But in the dead of that fateful night, the unsinkable Titanic stood on end and slipped into the dark, frigid waters of the Atlantic. The world was stunned. With some 1,500 passengers, the mighty Titanic was laid to rest in a watery grave before completing a single voyage. The sinking of the Titanic brings many lessons. But one thing it reminds us about is that we are subject to forces beyond our control. We're subject to forces beyond our control. We have to live with it. There's some two-year-olds that are really working on learning that message, but it doesn't take us long, does it, to realize we do not control our world. There may be no time this reality is any more obvious than when disaster or suffering visit us. Everything in our soul resists. We would do anything to get out of our situation, but we can't. If only I could get free of this financial bondage. If only I could be healthy. If only I had chosen a different career. If only I could get married. If only I would have married someone else. If only my child would obey God. If only I had not made that decision. If only I had been born into a different family. If only I had not failed. Not in that way. If only that had never happened. But it did. We are not in control of our world. The question that comes then is, who or what is? And why does it matter? These are questions every one of us has to address, we must face, Even the youngest children among us here have come with some answer to that thinking. We know we're not in control of our world. We know that things happen to us that we desperately don't want to happen. Things that we want don't happen. So we have to come with some explanation as to why that is. Now Acts 27 and 28 were not written to answer these questions directly. But these chapters display a worldview that does answer these questions. On the surface, these closing chapters of Acts record what we might call the fourth missionary journey of the Apostle Paul. He will make his way from Caesarea to Rome where he will stand trial for the faith. But they also teach us how we should look at life in a fallen world under the sovereign rule of God. So as as the book plays out, we're getting from Jerusalem to Rome. Here, from Caesarea to Rome. But we are also learning in these closing chapters how the world works under the sovereign rule of God. And I warn you here, what we find in these passages, many of us aren't going to like. 
We really don't want these chapters to be here, and we don't want them to say what they say. On some level, every one of us lives in resistance to the truth that serves as the foundation of all that takes place in Acts 27 and 28. There's far more to it than a shipwreck. For us to gain access to these chapters, we must do a little bit of preparation. First, Paul has been imprisoned in Herod's a seaside palace in Caesarea for two years because of his belief that Jesus of Nazareth was the prophesied, crucified, and risen Messiah. That gets all kinds of people in trouble in this world, and it got him in trouble. To avoid certain death by trial in Jerusalem, he invokes his Roman citizenship. He appeals to Caesar. He's granted that appeal. What follows is a riveting ancient account of a harrowing sea journey to Italy. We're going to do a bit of map work here. Let's go back to Acts 9. Acts 9 and verse 15. Acts 9 and verse 15. The conversion of the Apostle Paul, Saul of Tarsus at this point, there is a vision to Ananias after Saul's conversion in chapter 9 and verse 15 where the Lord says to Ananias, Go, for Paul, Saul of Tarsus, is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. That's Damascus. Romans chapter 15, we go to Corinth. Romans chapter 15, from Corinth... Paul is poised to sail east to Jerusalem, but first he sends a letter to the believers in Rome. Chapter 15, verse 25. At present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem bringing aid to the saints, for the Macedonian Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. We remember that, that account. Then down to verse 28. When therefore I have completed this in Jerusalem and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. Verse 32, So that by God's will I may come to you and with joy and be refreshed in your company. He has no idea how he's going to get there to Rome at this point. He thinks he'll come as a free man. He comes with a chain around one wrist. He comes as a prisoner of Rome, but he does indeed get to Rome. Rome. But Damascus, Corinth, let's go to Jerusalem. Chapter 23 of Acts. Acts chapter 23 and verse 11. Another crucial preparatory scene. There's the prophecy at his conversion. There is his letter to the Romans. We come then to Acts chapter 23 and verse 11. A crucial scene as he is in a cell in the fortress Antonia off the northwest corner of the temple complex. Remember, Christ appears to him there after suffering this trial, and he says that in that night, 2311, take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. God has spoken. He will get to Rome. The first leg of that journey, we go to chapter 27, and we pick up with it there at verse 1. We will cover an immense amount of text here, at least characteristically for us, but we'll move through it fairly quickly as we follow this journey. 
I have a word to say about it as it actually starts, but in preparation here, verse 1 of 27, And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. You note the word we. Who's we? Luke, the doctor, has apparently been researching and working here in Caesarea for the two years that Paul's in prison. Remember, he has no idea when Paul's going to be released. And so he's not likely to have taken off. He didn't know it was going to be a two-year period. He apparently stays here in Caesarea. There are other prisoners as well, some undoubtedly headed for the arena in Rome, where their lives will slake Rome's thirst for bloodshed. Verse 2, Embarking in, in a ship of Adramitium, and which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea accompanied by Aristarchus. You remember this man, a Macedonian convert who joined Paul's team and accompanied him on his visit to Jerusalem. So he apparently too has stayed in Caesarea for two years. Apparently all the others that went with him, they're mentioned in chapter 20. Remember all the fruits of the Gentiles that he's taking back to the Jerusalem church to introduce themselves and to show what Christ has been doing. Only Aristarchus apparently remains. So Aristarchus and Luke will probably be allowed onto the ship as Paul's slaves. It would be seen that way. He is a Roman citizen. He brings these slaves along with him as as the Roman centurion probably would have looked at it. And they are able to go with Paul on this journey. Now before we enter in, they are now at sea, but before we go any further, we have got to understand what is put here in our Bibles. What we are reading here is precious material in ancient history. James Smith wrote the classic The Voyage and Shipwreck of St. Paul, published in 1848. He was eminently qualified to write the book in defense of what is taking place here. He lived in the Mediterranean region for a while. He did research on Malta, where Paul's ship will land. He concluded that Acts 27, after a masterful work, he said that Acts 27 is an eyewitness account by a person who knew sea travel very well and was not a sailor. He writes this, No sailor would have written in a style so little like that of a sailor. No man not a sailor could have written a narrative of a sea journey so consistent in all its parts unless from actual observation. Another commentator says of Acts 27 that the details regarding first century seamanship are so precise and its portrayal of the eastern Mediterranean so accurate that even the most skeptical have conceded that it probably rests on a journal of some such voyage as Luke describes. Those that stand in criticism of Scripture are quick to line up in order and say it couldn't have been Luke who wrote it or it wasn't really this journey, but they have to concede somebody was on a ship watching what was happening. We, of course, give far greater credibility to the authors of Scripture. Luke wrote it because he saw it. As another expert has written, scholar, there is no such detailed record of the working of an ancient ship in the whole of classical literature. But what we have in our Bibles is what he calls the most detailed record of the working of an ancient ship that is known. This is valuable information just on that level, historically. But there's a message 
that is woven through this text that is far more significant to us, as valuable as the historical reality is. We pick up with the account at verse 3. The next day we put in at Sidon. And Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and to be cared for. Julius treats Paul as a man of high social status, but a soldier would have been chained to Paul's wrist during this visit to friends, to believers in Sidon, just a bit up the coast from Caesarea. Verse 4, And putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. So on the map here, you see Cyprus, the the idea would have been to pass to the south. The lee of an island is wherever it's calmest. So the lee of Cyprus will be on the north. The lee of Crete, moving ahead, will actually be on the south. It just depends the way the, the wind is blowing. So they have to pass on the north side of Cyprus, which is a little less ideal than where they had hoped to pass. And it takes a little bit of time. Verse 5 And when we had sailed across the open sea along this coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to the city of Myra, a prominent city and common port of call for ships heading west with grain from Egypt. So here they disembark as their ship will be doing what? Their ship is going to be heading up the Aegean from here. And so this is the place to get on a different ship to head across here to Rome, is what is their intention. So verse 6, we read what makes sense. There the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board, hauling grain from Egypt to Italy, a very large ship, we will learn. Verse 7, we sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Snidus. And as the wind did not allow us to go further, we sailed under the lee of Crete off Salmoni. That is off the Cape of Salmoni on the northeast corner of the islands. What is taking place as they make this journey from Myra is that they are driven, or from Snidus rather, they are driven south and must therefore go on the, uh, on the back side or the south side of Crete. So there are winds that are blowing dramatically through this region and they are driven off course quite a ways. They've been driven off course a bit here to go to the Lee of Cyprus and now driven off course again, having to find protection in the Lee of Crete. And they come to Lycia, near the city of Lycia. Verse 8. Coasting along it with difficulty, that is along the coast of Crete, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lycia. So they find some protection here. Gaining this picture of it, the problem is that the contrary winds have cost them some valuable time. And as fall gives way to winter, the winds come from the north, making it dangerous to cross the Mediterranean. They find safety in fair havens. Verse 9. Since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over. Let me stop just briefly. The fast is Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And there's a rule of thumb at this place. The weather in this region is highly predictable. And the rule of thumb was that it was dangerous to travel. You were taking your life in your hands to travel after September the 14th. It was impossible to travel after November the 11th. 
Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, falls after September 14th. So now to continue travel, and looking at what we're seeing here, is all they're looking at now is going to be travel from Fairhaven's here around this point and to Phoenix. This is where they will want to go. That's all they're really dealing with here at this point. Because verse 10 shows, and following, shows what everyone understands. Verse 10 of chapter 27, saying, this is Paul now advising them, he says, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than what Paul than to what Paul said, and because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. So there's no one saying that we're going to make it here from La Silla and Fair Havens all the way across at this time of year. We've lost too much time here. We've lost too much time here. It's too late in the season. We're going to have to winter on Crete. But where they want to winter is not Fair Havens and La Silla, this small town of La Silla and the poor harbor or the less ideal harbor of Fair Havens. They want to get around to Phoenix where there is a better harbor and hey, it's Phoenix. It's a big city. It's a great place to winter and that's going to be a happier situation for everyone. I say, well, what on earth does Paul have to do with this? He's a prisoner, right? No one wants to stay where they are except Paul. Paul is probably invited into the ship's council because he is most likely the most experienced traveler on the ship. He's been traveling for about 30 years. He has made what we know of 11 voyages by sea. Three have ended in shipwreck. The man knows a little bit about travel. And what he says is the fast is past, or he's looking at the fast, the day of atonement is past. And it's essentially, as Paul is saying here, listen, I've logged over 3,000 miles by sea, 11 voyages, I've been shipwrecked three times, I don't travel after Yom Kippur. You don't go to sea for any reason. We stay here at Fair Havens and the little town of La Silla, just the way it is but he's overruled. It's only 40 miles. All we've got to do is get around this little point, get back into land on Crete, and we'll be to Phoenix in a much happier winter. Verse 13, Now when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete close to the shore probably the last southerly breeze they found until they actually got where they were going. But soon, verse 14, a tempestuous wind called the Northeaster struck down from the land. Verse 15, And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. That isn't anybody's plan. There's nobody that wants it, but they round the Cape of Matala in the Gulf of Masara. They become exposed to this gale winds from the north, and the force is so great, they actually abandon hope of returning to shore. They have to yield to the winds. They're out of control. There's forces that are driving them. 
Verse 16, and running under the lee of a small island called Clauda, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. They're hauling along this little boat, the skiff that allows them to get to the land safely as they would dock a, a larger ship far from the, or off the coast a ways. And this boat is in great danger, but on the lee of this small island, they're able to secure it, to bring it in. And then, verse 17, after hoisting it up, they use supports to undergird the ship. So actually taking ropes and running it around the ship, whether above uh, the, the surface or, or even below the surface, there were different ways of doing it. They're basically tying the ship together. This is one violent storm. They're afraid that their wooden ship is going to be ripped to shreds out at sea. Then fearing, verse 17, that they would run aground on the Circus, they lowered the gear, probably the anchors, to serve as a brake, and thus they were driven along. What's going on here? The Circus are sandbanks down here off the Libyan coast. Every sailor, every mariner of the Mediterranean knew that was death. They were like quicksands, and as ships would be driven into them by the northerly winds, they were buried there. You died at sea. They were dreaded. They're a long ways from there, which again indicates what a violent storm this actually is. It's driving them uncontrollably, as far as they know, directly south. They don't know, in fact, where they are. Verse 18, since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo... And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands to try to lighten the ship. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Now notice this. These are mariners. They're saying there's nothing more we can do. We're done. Sextants and compasses and certainly GPS had not been invented. The only way that they can know where they're going is to see the stars, the heavenly bodies. They can't see anything. They are completely blind, completely driven by forces outside of their control. As desperately as they long for circumstances to be otherwise, they were totally at the mercy of the elements. They understood what was in the heart of the people in the Titanic going down. You don't want this to be happening, but it is. The winds are howling. The sea spray drenches everything on deck and makes everything difficult. They're tossed back and forth. They are in utter despair in circumstances beyond their control. And right about that point, the Apostle Paul takes over the ship. Verse 21. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. He's human enough to admit the obvious. He says, Yet now I urge you to take heart. What on earth is he talking about? For there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar, and behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. 
but we must run aground on some island. We've got to look at the foundations of this speech. Beyond simply seeing the journey itself, there are people in this world who do not believe in divine revelation. There's many who do in various forms, but there's many who do not. There are other people who live by it. They live their lives with the assumption and understanding that the divine realm is capable of contacting the earthly realm. Knowing that God reveals truth and speaks with authority, Paul describes the future for two reasons. One, he is in intimate communion with the Lord of heaven and earth. And two, that Lord of heaven and earth has spoken a word. He never breaks his word. Now again, the skeptics will write this off. This could not possibly happen, which is very interesting when we look at the writings of Romans and we look at the writings of Luke. But Paul and, and Luke have left to us about honesty and integrity, the standing that these men had in their world. To think of them as just bald liars making up stories along the way is a little bit difficult to deal with. What is far more significant is we know the joy of knowing God and knowing Him, knowing that He speaks His Word, and knowing that He never breaks a promise. That's what drives Paul here to speak. Now think of it. Paul's confidence does not rest in his skills as a mariner, not even in his experience as a sea traveler. In this situation, sailing skills are utterly meaningless. Paul's confidence rests in the fact that God who created the sea is on a mission to stand him as a witness before Nero, and God is going to do it. Everything seems otherwise. God is going to bring me to Rome. I would imagine, knowing Paul, he's not enduring this tempestuous sea without prayer. Undoubtedly, he is laboring in prayer and the man of love and compassion that he is for people. He's undoubtedly praying that those who are in the ship with him will be spared. God answers that prayer. I will spare the people who are with you in the ship. And you will stand before Caesar, as I have said. So Paul's confidence rests in the God who created the sea, who is on this mission God has answered his prayers. So Paul takes courage and he implores those around him to take courage. Why? Because Paul knows God keeps his word. He would have nothing else to say if he didn't believe that. And I wonder, do we live with that same faith? Do you live with this kind of trust in God's promises and dependence upon his providential steerage of the world? If you do, you'll live in a way that's radically distinct from this world, but you will live in a way that is in line with the Word of God. Ephesians 1.11 speaks of the God, the purpose of whom, or the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. Isaiah the prophet said, I am God, there is no other. 
I am God and there is none like me. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is still to come. I say, my purpose will stand. And I will do all that I please. What I have said, that will I bring about. What I have planned, that will I do. This is the God that Paul knows. There's Daniel the prophet put it, his dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the people of the earth. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and with the people of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? The ultimate control is God the Creator, the Sovereign Lord. We may not like that. That's what His Word declares. More on that in a moment. His Word declares those who love God, for them all things work together for good. Such confidence in the power and grace of God is not religious drivel. It's not what he takes into the synagogues and says, try this one out. i got this theological idea that I'd like to share with you. This is a man standing in the midst of a life-threatening storm that has taken out the hope of every mariner on board. And he says, we can trust God. We can trust his word. Not one of you is going to die. Keep that in your mind. Not one of you is going to die. Your ship's in bad shape. That's not going to go so well, but you are going to live. Take heart. He takes over the ship because it's the only thing that's really left. God's providence. Verse 27, when the 14th night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, not what we call the Adriatic Sea today, but that section of the Mediterranean Sea, about midnight, the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they took a sounding and found 20 fathoms. A little farther on, they took a sounding again and found 15 fathoms. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for the day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Wait a minute. Didn't God say everybody was going to live? This is how providence works. This is how those with a biblical worldview work. They believe that God runs everything, that He rules sovereignly, and we work our tail off to bring about His purposes. Paul does not go into the bowels of the ship, find a hammock, put his hands behind his head, and try to take a nap. He says if those sailors escape, there is no way we can get this ship to the land safely. You're going to all die. I'm going to stand before Caesar. I know I'm going to make it somehow, but this is not going to work. These sailors cannot escape. And the text that follows bears that out. So what do the soldiers do? Well, Paul's running the ship now. They cut it loose. Think of this, the boat that would typically take them safely to land is now gone. And watch our little dot. I don't, we don't have this 
by authority of Scripture that it took this particular journey. Where did they think they were going to land? They thought they were going to be driven into the Sturstus, the banks down here. They're being driven this way, and they strike a pinprick in the ocean known as Malta. 18 miles by 8 miles, and they land it on a beach. In such a way that the ship is wrecked and the people are saved. Dumb luck. Or sovereign God. You got to figure it out. Verse 33, as day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, today is the 14th day that you have continued in suspense and without food. I mean, just think of it. 14 days. No food. No hope of life. You've taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food. It will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. I mean, it's dangerous at sea. It may be even more dangerous to land this thing in a storm. Not a hair of your head will perish. Figure of speech, certainly. There's verse 35. And when he had said these things, he took bread, and, and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Then they all were encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons in the ship. Some say 76, but I think 276 is better attested, and there's ships that carried over 600 at that time, so it's not impossible. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. So they strengthen their bodies, they throw everything else out, so that the ship is as light as it can possibly be, and the sailors now get to work. Verse 39, when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach. This is good news on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea. There's virtually nothing left now but the hull. At the same time, loosening the ropes that tied the rudders, a series of ropes underneath the ship. They just break them loose so that the ship is now free to go where the wind takes it. They, then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach as fast as they possibly can, but striking a reef didn't quite work. Below the surface, before they reached the shore, was this reef, and they ran the vessel aground. The bow, the nose of the ship got stuck right there. And the stern was being broken up by the surf. It was being pounded so hard that the wooden ship was being torn apart. The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners. Wait a minute. Suddenly we've gone from the frying pan into the fire. It was dangerous at sea. Now it suddenly became more dangerous in the ship. If a Roman soldier lost a prisoner he was guarding, the soldier suffered whatever penalty that prisoner would have suffered. That's not going to happen to us, say the soldiers. Providentially, Paul has won the centurion's favor, however, and so verse 43, the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump aboard first and make for the land, and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship, and so it was that all were brought safely to land. Fourteen days... No navigation, 
driven by everything you can imagine southward by these winds, and they land on this pinprick of an island. The unsinkable Titanic sinks. The hopeless occupants of this Alexandrian grain ship steered toward the Cirstus as far as they know amazingly strikes land at the bullseye. And they all survive. St. Paul's Bay, it is called today on Malta. I'm not sure Paul knew exactly where he landed the day after, you can imagine. But as far as tradition has it, this is the place, and there's a very solid reason, as James Smith describes, for believing this is indeed where Paul's ship landed. You can kind of see the shallows there of the bay and how it would have been very uh, understandable to hit a reef outside and then making their way in the storm to this place. It is something of a haven here. And they were able to swim their way to shore. Tradition also having it that the Maltese were introduced to Christianity by the Apostle Paul, which we can, I think, confirm in chapter 28. And after we were brought safely through, we then learned that the island was called Malta. The native people showed, an unusual, showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all because it had begun to rain and was cold. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. That sense of retributive justice would have been commonplace throughout the ancient world at that time. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead, but when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. Bit of a flip-flop here. These native people, we could get the idea that they are very uncouth and unsophisticated. I don't think that's the case at all. Knowing the history of Malta, there was a Roman governor there and there were many retired soldiers that had been placed there. It was a fairly sophisticated people. They're spoken of as native or barbarian is the text, and that is simply meaning they didn't speak Greek. Uh, They weren't part of that system, but uh, it doesn't mean that they are in some form of lack of evolution. Uh, They're normal people, and they show great care for them as they seek to help these who have escaped the sea. But we see what takes place here with the Apostle Paul. Something of a miracle as this viper uh, bites his hand. People are sure that it means God is not for him. But you notice where their interpretation lies. It lies entirely on experience. And those that would mock them as unsophisticated often live exactly the same way. On the basis of my human experience, I draw conclusions. This man is a murderer that the sea has sought to kill and now will be destroyed by this viper. Then the experience changes and they draw an equally wrong conclusion. Paul is a god. They're living on human experience. God gives to his people a word. 
We live not on experience, but on revelation. And that's precisely now what God will graciously give to these islanders. Beginning at verse 7, Now in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publius, Roman governor, undoubtedly, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery, and Paul visited him and prayed, and putting his hands on him, healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. Why does this happen? God has not spared the ship from the storm. He has providentially. He's worked no miracles. They didn't suddenly levitate across the Mediterranean Sea. But here, He brings a miracle through the hands of Paul. Why? It's revelation. God is saying to these people, this is My man. He has a message for you. And while Paul does not preach here in the text of the book of Acts, I imagine Luke's scroll is running out. He's planning now to write another one probably at this point. He doesn't tell us anything about the ministry here, but it undoubtedly went down much like at Athens or at Lystra where people did not have the backing, the background of the Hebrew Scriptures. But undoubtedly, he proclaims to them the God of land and sea, the God of salvation, draws their attention there. How do they know who he is? He's not a God. He's a messenger of the one true and living God. And the revelation is that he is able to heal their diseases through the power of Christ. God's plan to redeem His people from sin and disease and death is breaking out among the Maltese in the name of the risen Christ. They were healed of their sicknesses. Verse 10, They also honored us greatly, and when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed. The journey continues. After three months, we set sail in a ship that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria with twin gods as a figurehead. Putting in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days. So they make their way from Malta up to Syracuse, the chief city of Sicily. And from there, verse 13, we made a circuit and arrived at Regium, a major port where grain was deposited from Egypt quite regularly. And after one day, a south wind sprang up. And on the second day, we came to Puteoli, up in, further up uh, in Italy. And uh, here they finally got that southerly breeze they've been looking for for a while. And it uh, helped them to move quite quickly. And there we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days, and so we came to Rome. That's our purpose here today, is to bring it from Jerusalem to Rome, from Caesarea to Rome, and to know that the gospel has reached here. We'll pick up there, God willing, later. But let's understand here what Rome is. Rome was the capital of the ancient world. It was the grandest political achievement ever accomplished, writes John Stott. To a Roman, the city of Rome was the center of the world. From the golden milestone in the forum at Rome, roads went out in all directions to all parts of the empire. The roads led to Rome. This was the center of the Gentile world. Jesus had set His face like a flint to go to Jerusalem and die for our atonement. 
Paul now is representing Jesus in Rome, the seat of Gentile power. The gospel is no longer tied to Jerusalem. Now it will go throughout the whole world. These chapters teach us then to interpret all of life from the perspective of Christ's saving purposes, not from the perspective of our personal ease and safety. Bringing Paul to Rome was not done for Paul's ease. It was done to bring the Gospel there. The risen, reigning, returning Christ is right now in the business of reconciling sinners to God. He is reigning from heaven and working in the midst of this world, in the midst of all of its suffering, to bring people to saving faith. To this end, He has suffered, dying to pay the penalty of our sins. As Paul's arrival at the capital of the ancient world indicates, Jesus is now laboring to save sinners among the nations, ultimately to renew this cursed universe. We see an evidence of it in the healing that takes place on Malta. But we see evidence of this work of Jesus as He gets His witness to Rome. Now the Gospel's already reached here in one sense, but now we have an eyewitness of the risen Christ who is standing here at the center of the universe as they understood it at that time, the center of the ancient world, and from the roads of Rome, this message will go out to all nations for the joy of the people of God. He is not laboring, Jesus in heaven is not laboring to... to, uh, Let me say it this way. Jesus is not presently laboring in heaven to make your life easy. That's not what He's up to. And that's that's the Jesus you hear about. If you listen at all, don't. But if you listen at all to TV preachers, He's there to make your life easy, Wealthy, to take care of you. You've got this cosmic rabbit's foot in the sky that you can rub at any time, and if you give me money, you can really rub him hard. That's not the Jesus. Paul doesn't know who that Jesus is. The unstoppable quest of the risen Savior is to save and to sanctify sinners. He's on a rescue mission right now. This is why Acts 27 can prove so troubling and why we resist it. God loves Paul. God has chosen Paul to fulfill his purposes. And yet God subjects Paul to two years in prison in Caesarea and puts him through this harrowing journey by sea. I don't like God acting like that. Why does he do that? The typical answers are that God has failed. And maybe in some way, we don't really feel comfortable saying that out loud, but we feel pretty comfortable thinking it from time to time. In my situation, with the way circumstances are, God has let me down. The reason is we are completely off the page with where we're at in this world. Our answers need to track down the sovereign purposes of God in salvation history. Like it or not, we are in a fallen world. We cannot speak for God as to why He takes the time that He takes or why He goes about the process in the way that He does. That's not our place. 
We're being driven by the winds of this world. We need to understand what He's up to in His saving grace. This is not the era of consummation. It's how we'd like it to be. No one gets sick. No one gets hurt. No problems take place. No one ever does anything to offend us. Life goes on just the way we want it to be. We're not in the era of consummation. We've not been delivered fully. This is the temporary era of witness. And in this era of witness, there will always be suffering and there will always be satanic opposition. Satan is going to blow against your boat as hard as he is able. And so Paul says to us over and again, by many trials we must enter the kingdom of God. And by suffering we will fill up what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ. Not because there's anything lacking in it in a saving way, but people don't know of the sufferings of Christ. What's lacking is people don't see it, don't understand it, and when they see it in us, when they see the way in which we respond to suffering, they can say, why do you deal with life like that? You should be deeply depressed. You should want to check out. You should not have joy. Why do you? And I can say because Jesus suffered for me. We're in this together as sinners, but there's hope in Christ. We show other people what it means to trust God in suffering as a testimony that God is and has spoken. How do we cope with the storms of life? We must learn to turn to the promises of God and dare to live today banking on the fact that what He has revealed will indeed come to pass. And it will. We read it earlier. Though our outer man is wasting away, our inner man is being renewed day by day. The wasting away in 2 Corinthians 4 that Paul's speaking about in part includes the trials and the suffering of this life. For this, he calls it, slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Wait a minute. This slight momentary affliction, Paul, he hasn't felt a free arm from a chain for two years. He's been two years in prison in Caesarea. He's endured this harrowing journey, his fourth shipwreck. He's known beatings and hunger and sleepless nights, people plotting against his life. This slight momentary affliction. But remember, this is a man who is granted a unique glimpse of eternity. He said all of this. There is working an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. That isn't, we're so heavenly minded, we're no earthly good. Who is the man standing up and saying, get something to eat here? What it is saying is we live on the Word of God and His promises. We live today as if what God has said will indeed come to pass because we know it will. And we live that way. For the things that are seen are transient. 
Hear Satan. Hear sin. Hear suffering. God's in a process here. He's saving this world. He'll save it entirely and completely, and He will save you entirely and completely as you have come to trust in Christ. But He's in process here. And God has promised you safe passage. Your ship, no matter how frail, no matter how beset by the tempest, is invincible. It's invincible until you have fulfilled His saving purposes on earth. We're not here to live at ease. We are here to join with the risen Christ and work out His redeeming purposes as far as He gives us life, whether that's to stand before Nero or whether that's to suffer before our neighbors and friends and relatives in a way that brings glory to God. To live is Christ. To die is gain. And until that day, let us take courage in the risen Christ. In whatever gale force winds are thrown against our life, and may we sail on till we meet Christ. Let's pray. Father, how small we feel. How small we are. But I thank You for Your living Word which breaks cold hearts and transforms us into the people that You want us to be. May we trust. May we learn to handle the circumstances that blow against us in a way that brings glory to our Savior. I pray that with fervor for those that are in Christ and have been saved to be a living testimony to this world of endurance and patience and faith in the promises of God. We don't call down any storms upon our life. We don't wish them upon anyone or ourselves. But as You design them for our ship, may we sail on. May we learn to walk in dependence upon You, our God, our Savior. We thank You for the work that You're doing. Forgive us when we love consummation more than we love Christ and what He's doing. May we join Him. For any that are separated from Christ today who have not come to see the beauty and the wonder of the risen Christ, I pray that You'd open eyes today and break hard hearts and teach us that we do not live by bread alone, by ease alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. We praise You for Your living Word. We praise You that we can trust Your promises. I pray that you'd bring us all into that experience through Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.